good morning. Well, we finally got there. We're in the last three verses. And if you've not been part of this, we've been picking the bones of 1 Peter, uh, going through it step by step and trying to find as much as we can of God's purpose and plan, especially in the topic of living well in difficult times. Peter's written this letter to churches that are in an environment of persecution. He's written it probably from Rome where he was under persecution and the church around him was under persecution. And we've been trying to work through it and find encouragement and challenge as we've looked at each little portion of of Scripture. And today we're down to the last greetings, basically. Um, And in one way you might think, well, okay, Peter's got to the end of his teaching now and he's just going to throw in a few platitudes and a few cheers, guys, and it's the end. But actually, I always think of the fact that when people are about to sign off something of real importance, they try and pull things together. And even in these few verses, I hope we can find something to challenge us. So let's just read through 1 Peter 5, verses 12 to 14. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, not so briefly really, but for him it was briefly. I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And that's the end of the letter. A couple of things I'd like to pick out, and to start before I start digging into them, to just pick out one word. It it says that, he says, with the help of Silas, who I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Testifying, bearing witness, corroborating. Thayer's definition says this, to bear witness, to establish by testimony. I think it's so powerful that Peter, when he writes about this topic, is speaking from a position of experience. He has been persecuted from way back. We need to remember the fact that he was one of the first people to join Jesus and start on the road with Jesus for the three years of his ministry. And in that time, there was great joy, there was great excitement, but there was great persecution as well. Peter himself in the time subsequent to Jesus going back to heaven, was part of leading the church in Jerusalem, and there was great persecution there. Peter's been locked up. He's had all sorts of things happen to him, and he speaks as one who can testify. He's able to speak from the experience of one who's been persecuted. He can bear witness to God's grace. Peter has both run and stood firm. He's been somebody who has run away when persecution has come and has been afraid, And he's been someone who stood firm under persecution. And he knows the difference and he knows what's made the difference. And he speaks from the heart. And it's always important to me to acknowledge when people bring encouragement and friendship who've been through what you've been through, it makes a difference. And my mind just involuntarily went back when I thought about that to the fact that when Sandra and I were newly married and young and, and tried to start a family, we were told after some years of trying and seeing as many medical people as we could that we couldn't have children. And that we would never have children of our own. And I remember the pain of being told that. And I remember people trying to console us who knew nothing of what we were going through. And there was a difference when people who were going through what we were going through came to us and shared their love and encouragement. Because they knew in the depth of the pain that we were going through, they had been through it as well and they could really witness. I mean, the the upside of the story is miraculously we have two children who are medically not possible. When I phoned the infertility clinic to tell them that Sandra was pregnant, they said to me that that was not possible. And I said, but there's something there on the scan. They said it was a bloated ovum. Well, my first bloated ovum is running a company at the moment. She's 34. 
and my second bloated ovum has presented me with a little bloated ovum with my first grandson. <laughs> but in that time of pain, it made a difference that there were people who actually had been through what we were going through. Some of our friends who had not been through that said things to us that were actually quite disturbing because they didn't realize where humor was appropriate and humor wasn't appropriate. And Peter is somebody who speaks to us through this entire book from a place of actually having lived it. As he concludes his letter, he reveals some of the characteristics of his ministry that are needed in our ministry. Just in the concluding verses, we can see some things about how Peter operates. We can pick them out. And the first thing is that, sorry, just give me a moment. The ministry of the church requires teamwork. And I want to see this exemplified in the person that he refers to in the first verse that we read here, a person called Silas. He says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother. Silas is the same Silas who traveled with Paul. He's a Hellenistic Jew. He's a Roman citizen, possibly born in Rome. And we first meet Silas in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, when it says, Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders amongst the believers. The context of this this is after the Jerusalem Council. The church had been established in Jerusalem. It had been strong in Jerusalem. Then persecution broke out and people began to flee all over the place. And as they fled, they began to start churches. And a church of Gentiles started in a place called Antioch, a Greek church. And they began to grow. And the church in Jerusalem sent a guy called Barnabas, who's a great hero of mine in the Bible. Barnabas means son of encouragement. He went down to go and help them lead the church. And after a while, he went and found Paul, who'd been in Tarsus for, some people think, about 14 years after being in Jerusalem, after his conversion. He goes and finds Paul, and the two of them begin to lead the church in Antioch. And then some false teaching arises. People arrive down in Antioch, and they start saying to the Hellenistic Jews, or to the, 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 the Greek believers, rather, that they can't just become Christians by accepting Jesus Christ and his salvation. They have to start following the Judaic law. And Paul and Barnabas say, no, that's not right. And so eventually the church in Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem to go and consult with the elders there. And they go and consult with the elders, with Peter and with James, who say, we need to tell the people in Antioch that they're not bound by the law, that grace is what they need and faith in Jesus Christ. And so they send Paul and Barnabas back with a letter, but they decide to send some reputable men of stature from their own church to travel with them so that when they arrive in Antioch, they can say, we come with the authority of the church in Jerusalem. We come with the authority of the Jerusalem council. And one of the people they choose is Barnabas, sorry, is um, Silas, which says he was a man at that stage already of stature in the early church. He was a man of authority and of depth. So we read about him just after the Jerusalem council, referred to as a leader amongst believers. And then we encounter him again in Acts chapter 15, verses 32 and 33. It says, Judas and Silas, there he is, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. So while they're down in Antioch, besides coming to affirm what has been sent by the Jerusalem council, they also exercise their ministry as prophets. And Silas is a powerful prophet working in the church. This is a man of stature. This is a man of renown. This is a man that people know about who has a ministry that is observable and filled with credit in terms of the, of the, the dependability, dependability of, his, of his prophecies. And then we read about him later when he encounters or begins to work with 
uh, Paul. In Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 38, it says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. But Paul did not think, sorry, and Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a deep disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Smyrna and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Background to this, Paul goes on his first missionary journey and he goes with a guy called Barnabas, this hero that we, we've talked about before, and they go and plant a bunch of churches through Asia. They come back and sometime later Paul goes and says to Barnabas, let's go again. And Barnabas says, yes, let's take John Mark again. Now when they'd gone on their first journey, a young man called Mark, who we will talk about later, went with them. The same person who lands up writing the Gospel of Mark. But at that time, he was a young, inexperienced man. And when Paul and Barnabas were on their journey, at one point, Mark comes to him and says, I need to go home. He doesn't have the staying power at that side to, to deal with the, the rigors of being on mission, with the rigors of being away from the, the church that he was familiar with. And so he leaves them and goes back. And Paul takes exception to this. When he comes to Barnabas later to go on a second journey, Barnabas says, we should take Mark again. And Paul says, No. And they have a falling out, and Paul says, I need to have someone. Barnabas says, I will take Mark and go, and this is going to be restored. We'll talk about it later this morning. But Paul says, I need someone to go with me, and he takes Silas. And we read about Paul and Silas traveling there together in that wonderful story of the earthquake in the prison when God releases them from prison by an earthquake after they've been beaten. What am I trying to say? Silas is a young or an established man, actually, not such a young man, of repute, of reputation, of ability, in fact, somebody who could have been running his own church or his own ministry very comfortably. In today's terms, he could have had the big church, the Holly Davidson, uh, the private jet, and all the things that seem to go, the trappings of super preachers in some of our countries in the world. He was somebody who could have stood on his own reputation, and yet we find him serving Peter. He has served Paul, he has served the church in Antioch, he has served the Jerusalem Council, Silas is a man who does what needs to be done with those who need him to do it. There is teamwork. There is a, we speak about the body of Christ. This is a perfect example of the body of Christ functioning. Silas brings what he has and he says, I will put that in to back up whoever needs me to back up. And he doesn't need to stand in the, in, in the limelight. It's a, um, a contested issue as to how much he contributed here because Paul says, sorry, Peter says when he's writing, he says, with the help of Silas, who, are, who I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly. What was the help that he gave? Well, we're not sure. Some think that he may have scribed for Peter, being a Roman citizen, possibly born in Rome, and a Hellenistic Jew, he would probably have been educated. Peter himself, although incredibly educated in the presence of Jesus Christ, was not a learned man and would probably have needed someone to write for him, or possibly have needed someone to write for him. So some think that Silas's role in this uh, letter was to write it. Others think that he actually contributed to the content, that he and Peter would sit as brothers and, and men of, of experience and discuss what to write to the church. And still others say that he possibly was the person who brought the letter to the churches because this letter was not just written to one church, it was written to a group of churches and it's thought that possibly uh, Silas was the person who brought the letter and explained it to them. In all cases, he was someone who did something really important in establishing this letter that we've been digging through for the last months. And yet, 
There is no sense of him seeking a place of prominence, but Peter acknowledges him. And so we see that one of the characteristics of Peter's ministry and the ministry that we need to have is teamwork. You know, back in South Africa for a period of time, I belonged to what people would call a mega church, one of those big churches with many thousands of people in. And as a consequence, we had people of stature in the preaching uh, galaxy in the world, <laughs> the star preachers coming through. And because I was on staff at the church, I did get to meet some of them. And Sue was also on staff at the church and met many of them. And very many of them had people who worked with them who stayed in the background but played an incredibly important part in their ministry. People who didn't need prominence, who didn't need a name or reputation, even though they could have demanded it for themselves, they simply wanted to serve as part of a team and simply wanted to serve God with their talents and giftings. And I want to challenge you. Are you holding on to a gifting? Are you waiting for something of a certain profile to take place? Or are you saying, this person needs someone to stand alongside them, I will do it. Silas, from the very first time we read about him, is doing what is needed at the time and as part of a team. And as a consequence, he becomes part of Peter's team and Peter acknowledges him. Peter says, this man has been of value to me. This man has made an important difference. And yet, we don't read much about him having an audience or an adoring audience. The second thing that Peter refers to about his ministry that's important for us is the ministry of the church is a ministry of grace. He says, I've written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Think about those of you who've been here through the, the is it 34 someone said? Was that an actual count or was it just a guess? It was an actual count. Thanks, Johnny. Through the 34 sermons on this book, will know that it's shot through with encouragement. There is reference to judgment. There is reference to consequence. But Peter has referred to the salvation gift brought by Jesus at the cross. He refers to it all the time. He refers to God's care and concern for us. And he refers also to the hope and inheritance that's restored and is, is, is waiting for us in heaven, the future that we have. We've spoken on a number of occasions about the fact that we have a hope and a future in Christ. It's a very uplifting book. It speaks about the grace of God. It does talk about judgment. It does talk about punishment, but it's not heavy on that. The focus is look to God as a God of grace and a God of encouragement and a God of love. And we need to take encouragement from this, especially from his grace. And I, I've just written something down which I'd like to read because I don't want to leave something out. If we see our ability to resist persecution and to stand strong in difficult times and circumstances as being connected to our worthiness or personal strength of character, we will be overwhelmed and anxious. We're told in this book to stand firm in difficult times. We're told to resist persecution. My ability to do so is not based on my worthiness. It's not based on my earnings. I've said this. God doesn't just help us when we deserve to be helped. And I want you to take that home today. If you take nothing else home, take that home. God does not just help us when we deserve to be helped. Think a little while about times that you've been in need. Times that you've needed to have God's strength with you as you've withstood temptation or withstood persecution or withstood loss. And one of the things that might have held you back is the fact that can I go to God and ask him for help because actually I've brought this on myself. Or actually I have failed. Or he's helped me with this before and before and before and I keep returning to the same weaknesses and the same strengths. I can't go to him. I'm too embarrassed. 
The grace of God is powerfully in this book all the way through. God does not just help us when we deserve to be helped. And then to tie on to that also, this is what I want you to take home as well. Suffering and persecution are not a sign of God. Persecution In faithful, if you've been strong, then God will bring his strength next to your strength and together you will stand. He says, in your weakness, in your brokenness, in your failure, when you've let him down, he will bring that same strength and that same power and the same commitment to you because of his grace. And when things are going tough, it's not God getting you back for something that you've done. You know, go and read the book of Job. People have brought all sorts of connotations to Job, and they're all valid, I'm sure. But what I get from that is this. The one thing that Job won't do the whole way through the book, no matter who tries to get him to, is to say that God is being unfair to him and that God is punishing him for a sin that he didn't commit or even for a sin that he committed. His friends keep saying to him, admit what you've done. And he's saying, my God is not like that. I don't understand why I'm going through this, but my God is not like that. God will not only help you when you deserve it. He will help you because he loves you. And when times are tough and you are struggling and you're needing the grace of God, it's not a sign of God's disapproval. Grace is the unearned favor of God that needs to be the foundation of our resistance. Remember last week this verse that we read, verse 10, but the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, after you've suffered a while, will make you perfectly established and strengthened, will settle you. In the midst of it all, the grace of God needs to be what we hold on to. He's always there for you. And Satan will come and say, you've disqualified yourself or you haven't earned enough and you can send him packing by saying, the God of grace. Quite sure what the context there would be because he was married and some are saying that he might be referring to her as being someone who's supporting them with him. But the general context is that this is the church called together with these churches and the reference to Babylon is because Babylon was the center of resistance to God and of persecution in the, in the Old Testament times. And so almost in a code, Paul is saying to these churches, the church in Rome, called in the same way that you are, suffering the same kind of... Rome was at that stage the epicenter of persecution. That's where it was the most intense. And that's where both Paul and Peter lose their lives eventually. And he says, this church, in the midst of its own persecution sends its greetings to you, stands alongside you. He says you were called together. He's almost saying that the reason why this church that has never met you, that has never had any interaction with you, is writing to you or is writing via me to you and is sending support is because you've been called by the same God and have seen the same divine grace operating in your lives. There is strength in having those around you who encourage you. I mentioned it right in the beginning. And Paul writes and says, you guys are not the only guys who are suffering and you're not the only guys who are going to suffer. And the church, later that I read, said, in effect, the reason why these Roman Christians that have never looked at you with Bithynians face to face do yet feel it in their hearts going out to you and send you their loving messages because they in common with you have been recipients of precisely the same divine act of grace. And then he refers to Mark. He says, the church sends you my regards, sends you their regards, I send it for them. As does Mark, my son. Now let's look at this young man. If we go back to what we started finding out about Barnabas and Silas when we spoke in the beginning, the falling out between Peter and Paul was because of this young man called Mark. As best we can ascertain, Mark was the son of one of the disciple 
the ladies that followed Jesus and supported him. When Peter is freed from prison by the angel and comes to a prayer meeting, it's been held in the house of, of this woman who is the mother of John Mark. He's a young man at the beginning of the church in Jerusalem who's active and involved and enthusiastic. And when they go on their first missionary journey, Barnabas, who is believed to have been his cousin because it refers to him as his cousin at a later stage, Barnabas says, let's take him with. And he goes with and he fails. And he fails in full view of probably the most powerful apostle at that time, the apostle Paul. He lets him down. He lets Barnabas, his cousin, down. He lets Paul down. He's embarrassed. He goes home with his tail between his legs. And yet we find at the time that Paul wants to go again and comes to Barnabas, John Mark's ready to go again. And he goes with Barnabas. And we don't know exactly what happened when he went with Barnabas and what they, that's not recorded for us. But clearly he establishes himself because we find him again back in relationship with Paul. In Colossians, we read about this reconciliation. Colossians 4 verse 10 says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. There's restoration in the relationship between Paul and Mark, and Mark has kept going. Have you ever stepped out bravely into a new ministry situation and fallen flat on your face? Or have you been too afraid to even do that? Have you embarrassed yourself by saying, I can do something and you couldn't? And have you gone off to lick your wounds and never to stand up and say, I'll do it again? This young man has had the humiliation of having to say halfway through a missionary journey, I can't keep up with you guys, I'm going away. And then having the rejection of this powerful man, Paul. Barnabas says, come with us. And Paul says, no. To the extent that these two men that he cherishes and loves actually have a falling out. How devastating must that have been for this young man? And yet we find he perseveres and we find that Paul talks about him as being someone that you should welcome. And then later when Paul is writing to Timothy, he writes this. He says, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. That's Paul talking. And now we find Peter saying, the church sends you regards as does my son Mark. He has become like a son to Peter. He's working alongside as part of this powerful team that Peter's got together. He's representing him and he's mentioned as someone to be honored and someone to be respected. I want to encourage you, get up and do something if you've fallen down. So many people are lost to ministry and to being valuable to the church because either in the first place they've never seen themselves as being able to do something, but a lot of people are, are damaged because they've tried and it's not worked out. And it might not have worked out because of circumstances that they couldn't control, or it might not have worked out because they themselves have failed. Failure in God's ministry is not terminal. It's not terminal. If we come to him in repentance and we give him our hearts, he lifts us up, he dusts us off, and he sends us out again. And this young man on Peter's team is a wonderful example of somebody who's overcome the embarrassment and the shame and the rejection of people of real stature and brought himself into a position where the same man who said, no, we're not taking him with us, says, send him to me because he's valuable to my ministry. And it's broadly believed that the Gospel of Mark was written by this young man recounting what Peter shared with him. Because the Gospel of Mark, and Mark was not there when it was 
the, the, the events that are recorded took place, his writings secondhand, are very personal in the way that they are, are recounted and smack of the terminologies and things that Peter would use. And so many theologians believe that in this time that Mark was with Peter, he recorded the gospel according to Peter, but written by Mark. What an incredible, powerful ministry that both Silas and Mark have in our New Testament and in our lives. How powerful these two people that Peter has gathered around him, both of whom are totally committed just to serving. Silas having stature that could stop him. He could say, I'm too important for this. I'm going off to start myself a nice church by the sea and build myself a nice villa and a big auditorium. And we're going to have a super church called the Church of of Silas. And the other one being on the other extreme, having been completely embarrassed and humiliated, could have said, I'm not worthy. I'm just going to go and sit in a corner and hope God will eventually forgive me. But both of them have said, in spite of our status and our situation, whether it's good or bad, we are submitting who we are to God's service alongside whoever needs us. You know, when I was about 17, 16, 17 years old back in South Africa, I got into British folk rock music, bands like Fairport Convention and Fothering Gay and Steel Ice Band, for those of you who are old enough to remember them. And I remember reading album covers, and there were certain musicians who just kept popping up, people like Dave Swarbrick. If you had a fiddler on an album, it was Dave Swarbrick. People like Jerry Donahue and Trevor Lucas and Sandy Denny, they just popped up because they were that good that when somebody was doing something that they could do, they would say, that's the person to go to. I think we've got a Silas and a Mark example here of people who said, I will be useful in the kingdom of God to whoever, wherever, in spite of whatever, I will make myself available. And at the end of this letter, as Peter begins to, to, to wind up, he refers to these people in his team and these people around him that have played an important role in the writing of this letter, which is to the churches then and to us, a wonderful encouragement. I want to encourage you to think about that and think about what it means to you. Have you put yourself forward for something and you haven't been asked to do it and it's hurt you? So did Mark. Have you gained a stature and, and, and an experience and you're being used below your level of, of qualification? Well, so was Silas. And yet, somehow, although they kept a low profile themselves, their names are written in the Bible in the most published and most distributed book in the world. They're recorded and they're there. Because God uses those who are available. Faithful, available people are who God uses. And then he goes on to say this at the end. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. And all I've written there is demonstrated affection and support. He says, show each other that you care. A kiss of, of love is a kiss of charity, agape love, it says. It doesn't say fall in love with one another. It says, greet one another with a kiss of charity and of love. Show your affection for one another. I'm one of those people that when Anne started saying, get up and go and greet somebody, would go, oh, please, no. In spite of the fact that I'm happy to stand up and, and speak in front of you, I'm very shy one-on-one. Uh, a, a cocktail party with a, a sandwich in one hand and a glass of wine in the other and a whole bunch of people I don't know is my worst nightmare. And yet I found over the months and years as we've done that a great joy in seeing the church stand up every morning and go and greet one another and showing overt affection and concern for one another. Do that. Don't just love your brothers and sisters in silence. Go and tell them, I appreciate you, I value you. If you feel free to and, and it's not going to be inappropriate, greet them with a kiss of love. I'm not advocating wild kissing here. <laughs> but where it's appropriate. And then he goes on to say this. 
and with that I'll be drawing to a close. He says, peace to all of you. Now remember, we're talking about living well in a time of persecution, living well in difficult times. He says, peace to all of you. And the word that's used there is the word erine. And Thayer's definition of that word means this. It says it means this, a state of national tranquility, an exemption from the rage and havoc of war, peace between individuals, i.e. harmony or concord, Security, safety, prosperity, felicity, because peace and harmony make and keep things safe and prosperous. The way that leads to peace of Christianity, the tranquil state of the soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God, and content with its earthly lot, whatever sort that is. The blessed state of devout and upright men after death. That's what that word has as its definition. In the midst of writing to people about suffering persecution, in the midst of writing to people about dealing with troubled times, Peter's final word to them is, peace be with you. That's what God wants in your life. Are we going to have it all the time everywhere? No. But that's what God is speaking into your life. That's what we have as our hope and our future. And it's interesting, it's the same word that Jesus used when he appeared to his disciples. When he appeared to them, it says, in the same day at the evening, this is John chapter 20, verse 19. The same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be unto you. And then verse 21, and then he said to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. In spite of sending us into the midst of a world that is torn with strife, that doesn't want to hear the message that we have, Jesus says to us, Peace be with you. And Peter echoes that and he says this is what we have as a promise from our God in the midst of all this turmoil he's saying to us peace a state of national tranquility exemption from the rage and havoc of war peace between individuals harmony and concord and I could go on with the list all these encouraging things of God can change our circumstances now although we live with the hope for the future and the fulfillment of God's promises to us in heaven these things are part of the promise we have now that in the midst of these concerns we can have peace we can have tranquility we can have assurance we can have concord we can have harmony and I just want to pick up one more thing before I pray that harmony within our our own community is so important in a world that's tearing itself apart and where countries are fighting against countries we need to have the churches stop fighting against one another we need to have Christians stop criticizing one another in public we need to stop being so close to being gangs that sometimes it's hard to discern we need to show support and love we need to show the kingdom of God in what we do we need to show harmony not by compromise but by pushing through in the love of God I want to say to you that as we come to the end of this book we've gone week by week and we've taken two or three verses and we've pulled them apart as best we can I want to encourage you and challenge you go and read and be encouraged by it and be challenged in the future soon to draw the fullness out of it. When you analyze something and when you pull it apart in the way that we've endeavored to do, you can sometimes remember this little part and then you remember that little part and four sermons ago that person said that. All of that is good, but to put it back into context, to put the parts back together again, that's something which you can do in the months to come or the weeks to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the people that have gone before us in your kingdom, for the people who have ministered before, and we thank you for people like Peter who have written 
incredible encouragement by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the people who have been part of it and who have written it under your guidance. Lord, as we come to the end of the study, as we look back on it, we want to ask you to bring to our remembrance things that you've stirred in our hearts. Help us see the context and the detail. Help us, Lord, to make this a piece of scripture that isn't just something that we know something about, but it's a scripture that changes our lives. Help us to not just read it, but to live it. Thank you for the grace of your Holy Spirit who makes things come alive to us and makes us able to understand things which we can't understand ourselves. Thank you for your grace which permeates this entire letter. Thank you for your love with which it's ended. And thank you for each other in Jesus' name. Amen.